Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast, with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Good morning, Baha'i Blogcasters. Or good afternoon or good evening. I have no idea what time it is where you are. It's uh, me, Rain Wilson. Of course, who else would it be? And I'm here with a most amazing guest, a longtime friend, a wonderful Baha'i speaker, playwright, writer, philosopher, raconteur, man about town, uh, Tom Lysat. I have been hearing uh, give Baha'i talks for well nigh on 20 years, probably like honestly 17 years-ish around. In fact, you you gave a talk at our old house in Van Nuys, remember? That's right, yes. Yeah, back, yes. way back in the day. Um, one of the things I loved about Tom was, and we'll get into him and who he is and what he's about and his new book and, and all of that fun stuff, but one of the things about Tom that I love is um, 17 years ago when I invited him uh, to speak at a a spiritual gathering we we're having at our house. He gave me a sheet of paper, and on the sheet of paper he said, "Oh, here's the topics I could speak about." And there were probably sixty-seven things on that sheet of paper. Do you remember that, Tom? <laughs> yes, but I don't think it was sixty-seven. <laughs> it was a lot. It was more than a couple dozen. But tell me, how did how did that sheet of paper come about? from giving talks and then I started making a list of possible topics when people would ask me to speak I said well you know pick one <laughs> so that's how it happened but there were so many on there what are some of the topics on the list oh fear is more pain than the pain it fears uh, the mysticism of meetings <laughs> wow I'd go for the paradox usually you know what is the mysticism of meetings consultation Oh, okay, great. So you that's how you, that's your way in to that's address right. like consultation. That's my hook. Uh, as a uh, as a um, as a as a as a spiritual tool for meetings. That's right. Yeah. Well, tell us a, a little bit about so you're a Brooklyn boy. I'd love to hear a little bit um I've heard like little stories here and there growing up in Brooklyn, big baseball fan, um, big Irish family. Am I getting all that right? That's correct. And uh, I'd love to Give us a peek into the old world, Lysat. All right. So Irish Catholic raised, you know, a household of about 10 of us with one bathroom. You know, my grandmother was there and my seven siblings. All Catholic school raised. And this was in the age back when the Catholic Church even ran Hollywood with its Legion of Decency. If you recall, that was the, wow. that was the committee that actually uh, reviewed movies and gave them standings. And they didn't have X back then. It was condemned. So things like Goldfinger and even Midnight Cowboy, they'd be condemned. And so you'd, you'd be committing a mortal sin if you attended those films. I'm mentioning this just to give you an idea of how, you know, the power of the Catholic Church back then and um, how things have changed. But my point is that that was my worldview. And, uh, and, um, and my sisters even went to Catholic colleges. I was the only one in my family that didn't go to a Catholic college. And, and when I was an altar boy, I wanted to be a missionary priest when I grew up. Really? Was, yeah, I really did. And Father Damien was one of my heroes, the, uh, the martyr in Hawaii. He lived among the lepers. And um, Well, in a way, you live among the lepers in Los Angeles. 
the spiritual lepers. <laughs> well, <laughs> and you got to be careful you don't catch the disease. That's the challenge. You know? <laughs> it, it, there you go. There you go. <laughs> yep, yep. Definitely been wrestling with that for the last 20 years. But within all that, my the thing that gave me my identity was football. And I was on a team in the 7th and 8th grade. We won the New York Championship. We went to Florida to play the Dixie Bowl when I was 12 years old. And it was only later that I realized while we're on the train going to Florida, none of my black teammates were on the train. And this was before the Civil Rights Act. Wow. And so you realize at this point, you know, blacks were kept from the voting polls in those days in the South. And in fact, the book has just come out called The Nickel Boys, which is about that yeah, epic. Colston Whitehead. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's about that period in, in northern Florida. And I realized I was going on a train right through that. And the parents of these boys, they probably were afraid to send their sons into the Deep South back then. But I mention this because that determined what high school I went to. My parents were very good. They knew I wanted to go to a high school that only played football. And of course, it had to be a Catholic school. And that was a big, that was a big impact on my life. I went to a Jesuit prep school in downtown Brooklyn. So it also introduced me to a diversity that my white neighborhood didn't have where I grew up in Brooklyn. Oh, great. So that Jesuit high school had racial diversity. Absolutely. And the neighborhood as well. There were Orthodox Jews and blacks, and and they lived harmoniously. Even when MLK, Martin Luther King, got assassinated, there was no trouble in that neighborhood. Mm. So there was... uh, And so, and this was the time Father Berrigan, the famous radical priest, had even taught at my high school for a while. So there was that sense of education. So there was also a diversity of ideas. Absolutely, absolutely. And it sort of opened my eyes. I, I remember my term paper for AP History I wrote on the Black Panthers. Wow. Yeah. So um, so that was, I, I really believe, the beginning of my awakening. That was when I began to question my Catholicism. The first thing that dropped away was confession. One day on the way as my class was off to the church for confession, I just decided... I'm not telling the priest my sins, and that was that was the beginning. That was the uh, the, the the wedge that uh, that began to make me an agnostic. And, and was it was it because the sins were too bad, or just the <laughs> the process you saw as being I, flawed? I saw the process as flawed, and I realized that for the longest time I'd been approximating. I hadn't really been calculating exactly yeah, what yeah. went on in my mind, and uh, <laughs> and so it, it just seemed kind of frivolous to me and uh, then soon thereafter I couldn't believe in hell anymore and so by the time I graduated from my high school I wasn't agnostic wow yeah. all right college made me an atheist oh wow so you yeah a sharp turn Where, where'd you go to college I went to Harvard that was uh, um, another major other than becoming a Baha'i that was probably one of the most uh, most impactful experiences oh wow yeah. and what were you studying there I started out as a psychology major, and then I took a minor in literature because I always knew I wanted to be a writer, and um, and I wanted to also sort of temper psychological jargon. <laughs> I didn't uh-huh. want to get so immersed in psychology that I was walking around, you know, talking in ways no one would understand. Uh-huh. <laughs> so. uh-huh. Also, as a writer, I've always been fascinated by character. That's the thing that draws me in when I'm writing something, and so psychology. Originally, it was a way to understand myself, really, is why I wanted to, to study it. Mm. And uh, mm. it's just been a happy marriage between the two in terms of my writing. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but you never went down that psychology route. You never went to... No, um, I didn't. I'm going to be a therapist or a research clinician or something like that. I mean, in high school, I wanted to be a psychiatrist. That was my goal. But then when I realized you had to become a medical doctor first, I thought, no, mm -hmm. I don't... And no, it just did fall away. I think in college, when I became... This was sort of, you know, the period of uh, uh, the radical times in the early 70s. You know, we often refer to the 60s. But, you know, the 60s really began with the Beatles in 64. They kind of went until about 73 when the war ended. Right. And um, so I was in college in the early 70s, and, and this was a very sort of radical time. And so I would be interested more, perhaps I was thinking about working in social work than I would as a therapist at that time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, 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 makes, that makes a lot of sense. That would be reflective of the times and whatnot. But, so how do, you, how do you go from there, young Harvard kid, literature and psychology uh, into the Baha'i faith? Well, um, I had a lot of hippie friends. Sure. Know? And of course, nowadays, that, that's become a, uh, a punchline of a joke. But really, you know, I, and, and so we tend to think of hippies as, I mean, I never wore a tie-dye shirt in my life. Like now, you know, that's just the cliche. All these cliches about hippies are sort of dismissed. The way in one of your interviews, you were talking away, talking about how even today to speak of world peace as we did in those days yeah. is dismissed as being naive. Yeah. And so today we sort of dismiss the hippies as a, as a blip on the timeline of history that's disappeared. Yeah, Where, by by able by being able to mock long hair and being unwashed and guitar solos and tie-dyed shirts, we we dismiss a really powerful and important movement, maybe the most important movement maybe other than the civil rights movement. And, but it went hand in hand with the civil rights movement when you think about it, mm -hmm. um, you know, in American history. Um, and I think that, you know, I tweeted the other day, I said, the hippies were right. Because, you know, they're, they're right. We, love is all you need. It's peace, love, and understanding. I mean, maybe, yeah, okay, the drugs and the sex kind of took over at a, at a certain point, right around circa 1973. Mm -hmm. But... Um, the ideals of, of the hippie movement, um, we could really use these days. Absolutely, absolutely. And that whole concept of the, the clothes at that time, that wasn't a fashion statement. People didn't wear clothes with a name on them. What the, the whole purpose of sort of dressing down was to emphasize what Martin Luther called judging people by the content of their character. Yeah. You know, and now mm -hmm. as opposed to people thinking that was sort of a fashion statement, how people dress. And there were thrift store clothes and they exactly. were, it wasn't high fashion. It was, no. Uh, no. you know, it was, it was what, you, we're not going to be judged by our clothes. We're going to throw something together. It's going to be these bell bottoms and these sandals and this old t-shirt. And, uh, uh, cause that's not what's important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question, I I took a as part of my psychology, I took a course in Zen meditation. It was about you know twenty people. We'd go to this you know professor's house, and he'd serve us chai tea, which would began my love affair with chai tea, and um, then we'd meditate. And it was through this process of Zen meditation, which doesn't presuppose the existence of God, so it was accessible to me. Um, it was when I began to have that sense, that sort of oceanic feeling of connectedness, you know, whether you want to call it a transcendent or a religious, and that that put me on a little bit of a of a quest, mm. I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. And um, and then while I was writing my scene, that whetted your appetite for something beyond the material. It did, and that was going hand in hand with rock music because at a, at certain points when I was in college, 
Um, I might go to two or three concerts a week. No almost. kidding. Okay, yeah. let's let's rock and roll is a is a big part of my life. Well, who are you listening to? Oh, and where God. did what concerts did you go to? Well, it went from everything. Did you see to... classic Dead in the early seventies? Oh 70s, God, Dead? yes, with Ken Kesey. No yeah. kidding. Oh yeah, yeah. So I always hated the Grateful Dead, and I had a bunch of Deadhead <laughs> friends. And then no, but recently I heard some live dead from the early 70s from like 72 to like 75 76 in there i think it was before the heroin completely overtook jerry and they were amazing yeah. i mean the musicianship the improvisation the, the just the textures and levels it was um uh, mm-hmm. it was it was true transcendent psychedelic cowboy mm-hmm. uh americana and uh, I, I really was like, oh, that's what everyone is talking about. By the time I saw The Dead and Dylan in the 80s, they just were just like endless noodling is what I call it. And, yes, um, yes. So, and it just was not interesting. It was just a, a hollow shell of its, old, of its old self. Yes. I wasn't so much a deadhead as some of my friends were. Um, you know, the ones that today have all the tapes. You know, they, they yeah, go yeah, all the way the, back. Yeah. You know, it's mainly those two studio albums. The bootlegs. You know, uh, American yeah. Beauty and Working Man's Dead. That they just, just, you know. So the groups like that, I had I had tickets for the Allman Brothers. And then word came out that Dwayne got killed the night before. But the concert went on, you know. No and, kidding. Yeah, he, he died. Yeah, so, you know, groups like that or, um, you know, the Jefferson Airplane even, you know. Uh, but uh, so my point was, is that that was that was my transcendent experience. And that, you know, that that evolved into groups like Mahavishnu, John McLaughlin with his. Uh, so that became part of my my transcendence in addition to this meditation. Yeah, because that that whole group, too, they like uh, Ravi Shankar was kind of brought in Indian right. music, mystical music and traditions from all over the world. That's kind right. of were brought into some of those concerts, George Harrison the and concert whatnot. for Bangladesh. And, yeah. Yeah. That uh, yeah. 71. That's right. Madison Square Garden. So another thing that we, you know, we dismiss hippies and yet they were so, so many, the embrace of civil rights, the embrace of world music and culture and that we're all humans on sharing one planet. I think the back to nature aspect of hippiness, the ecology movement started in the early seventies. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. The whole idea of what an environmentalist is today started with the hippies. Um, I, I really want to do a, a deeper dive into this because um, it really, frankly, it just pisses me off that uh, that whole movement is, is like you said, is just dismissed as tie dyes and bell bottoms mm-hmm. when it really shifted our understanding of the world completely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. So continue. Well, you know, you just reminded me of something. You know, in the Dawnbreakers, uh, Baha'u'llah says that you know many people have encountered the revelation. He says they've done some deed. Um, it's on page six thirty. I don't remember the quote, but it's worth looking up. And so I, I recall once having tickets for Cat Stevens. Mm-hmm. And my my psychology uh, tutor said that we had a tutorial on that night, and that no one could miss it. And so I advertised. However, we did in those days. You put these little posters out with tear off phone number yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, sure. People, on a telephone pole and, or something. And so this one, you know, girl. We said girl in those days. Not everybody's a woman, even if they're fourteen. You know? yeah. but, but she so she came to my dorm and she said, "You have a Cat Stevens ticket, you know." To, and, and I said, I do, you know, of course, and this, I've been looking forward to this for so long, you know. And, and, um, and when she went to take her wallet out, I said, no, no, I said, it's a gift. You can just have it. 
And um, it's funny, you know, how if, if you read that quote, it makes, it makes every Baha'i want to go back and think, gee, what was the deed I did that gave me the bounty of encountering Baha'u'llah, you know? Wow. And so I've, I've often thought it was connected to rock music. You know? Giving that ticket away. Giving that ticket away. We had an extra ticket to Radiohead last year, and there was like this young Radiohead groupie outside, this maybe 18-year-old girl, and we, we just, we did the same thing. And uh, I was one of the great experiences is like, oh, hey, you're a Radiohead fan? She's like, yeah. I'm like, uh, you don't have a ticket for tonight? No. I'm like, oh, here you go. <laughs> what? And she literally was shaking. Tears were pouring down her face. Aww. She was like, thank you. Thank you. And uh, it was, it was a, that was a great experience. Well, that reminds me, I hope we're not talking too much about music, but, you know, Dylan, after his motorcycle accident in 67, he didn't perform again until 74. Rolling Thunder Review. And, you know, I was, I've always said as a writer, my biggest influence is a Dylan and Shakespeare. And, um, and so... Have you seen the Rolling Thunder Review documentary on Netflix? Yeah. Oh, my God. It's quite amazing. so good. Yeah. Just a time capsule. Whole other era. But I held the sign. I sat outside Madison Square Garden with two signs because no one could get a ticket when he finally started. And and, I, and they paraphrased titles of his, you know, it's a ticket. It's all right, Ma. It's a ticket and only a ticket I need, you know, temporarily like Achilles. I had these two signs. And this guy came up to me and goes, he, and he hands out this ticket. And I said, for me? He said, those are your signs. It's your ticket. Oh, man. And then, walked, you know, I walked into the garden and then I... I made sure I saw him in Boston, and I went down to Florida to see him. But uh, like you're saying, in those days, it was a, a, a devoted following we had, like you with Radiohead, you know. Mm-hmm, that, uh, mm-hmm. But uh, so anyway, um, what happened then in my senior year was, I, because I had two majors, you had to write a book-length thesis combining the two. And it was in the process of researching that. Uh, I was writing about the metaphysical poet. I was doing a psychological analysis of the metaphysical poet George Herbert. And um, there's actually a chapter by Marzea Gale in Dawn Over Mount Hera where she writes about George Herbert. But I was in the process of researching that, that I intellectually came to, uh, to, to believe in the concept of, of, of God's existence. But I'm a very intuitive person, um, more so than an intellectual. I, I do things really by intuition. And so that wasn't enough for me that I could sort of intellectually grasp. And then it was, um, I was working so hard on, on this thesis that this one friend of mine is actually coming to visit uh, tomorrow. We're still friends. He said, come on, you got to go up to Maine, you know, and get out of here for a while. You've been working too hard. He had a house up there. And this is in February in the snow. Anyway, to make a long story short, I got lost in the snow in the woods of Maine and, and had this experience for about eight hours. Wow. In, in which, uh, you know, I realized... Lost, like I might die lost? Oh, or? absolutely. Until then, when, it was only until the sun started going down that I realized. And then I looked down and the snow was brown around my boots. I'd been standing in one place for so long. And um, that, that changed my life. That was when I knew. And it really, you know, as an artist, you'll appreciate this. What the, what the experience was, I was standing next to a gazebo where there were these... It was a deflated balloon hanging, perhaps from a summer party. And... Um, as I was being blown away by the beauty of nature, the snow, the, the water, looking out at the bay and the trees, I would just exclaim, you know, oh, God, you know. And then I'd look at this balloon. Were there I, drugs involved? Tom? Now, wait a second now. You know, there's drugs involved in everything. Isn't they, <laughs> you're on caffeine right now. <laughs> this is decaf. This is decaf. 
But I, I, I hear you. Okay. But when I look at the balloon, I'd go, "Oh man!" And what what the vision sort of was to oh, me. Oh, so was, so you were going, "Oh God!" In oh, nature, man. And nature, and then the deflated balloon. Yes. Oh man! And what the yeah. revelation to me was that man could create nothing to compare with what this prime mover could create. Yeah. And that as a writer, the only thing I could ever do that would compare with the beauty of natural of nature and natural creation would be to create something that reflected it. Hmm. And so that was my my artistic vision that that uh, sort of complemented um, you know my my spiritual vision. And then because of that, I was going to graduate in four months. And then I decided that um, it was like lightning had struck. And I was like, well, wait a second. You know, now I know that there's electricity in the wall, but I don't know how to plug into it. Ah. You know, and I can't just stand around waiting for lightning to strike again. So I decided to put my entire life on hold after I graduated. And go as far away as possible until I could discover the meaning of life. You went on a mystic journey. I did to the you South were, Pacific. You were a pilgrim. You went to this. <laughs> now you were not a Baha'i at this point. You're no, just, no, you were no. just going. I was going to look at. I, now I experienced this. Did you get your degree, or you? Oh yeah, I got yeah. my went back, got my degree, and then uh, tried to spend the summer. I fell in love that summer. Then tried to earn money to go on this trip, and I would keep spending it. So finally, I just went. With a hundred dollars in my pocket, and of course no credit card, no phone in those days. Sure. You know, and and um, where'd you go? South Pacific's a big place. Yeah. So there was Hawaii, there was Tahiti, there was Fiji. But I spent the most time in New Zealand. I spent the most time in Australia. I found a job there, and um, and I only brought three books with me. And I I, re- I had written my first play that summer. And I was never. I said I'm not going to write again until I know the meaning of life. Because why should people bother to read what I write if I can't, you know, point towards this experience that I had? And so the three books I brought with me were the portable Walt Whitman, a Bible, mm-hmm. and the the collective writings of Sri Aurobindo, because that that Indian mystic had through my meditation had had a big influence on me. Mm. And um, and after a few months and some some descents into the valley. It wasn't all a, uh, an arc of ascent, as, as Dr. Saidi might say. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, t- took a plane to Canberra, which in Aboriginal means meeting place, which is significant. And as I got off the plane, uh, a bearded Aboriginal walked up to me and he said, you need a lift. And I said, okay. And what I was going to do was climb Mount Kosciuszko, which is the highest point in Australia, which isn't saying much. Australia is about as mountainous as Florida. But um, I was trying to get back to what I felt I had gained and lost in terms of, you know, my quest. And um, so he goes, like, goes, wait here a second. And uh, he goes off to help these two middle-aged men that looked Indian to me. And I realized in retrospect, they were probably Persian. Okay. And he helps them claim their bags. And then he beckons to me across the concourse. And so I walk with my backpack, and um, one of these gentlemen says something to him which I don't hear, but he says in response, no, he's not a Baha'i. And when I heard that word, it was like a bell went off. And uh, that day in Canberra, meeting place, a a a national Baha'i youth conference was convening at the university, and he was picking up these gentlemen to take them there. He dropped them off there. Meanwhile, he asked me, you know, where I'm going, and he probably thought I was a nut when I said I'm going to climb Mount Kosciuszko, you know. 
And he said, well, I see you got a sleeping bag with you. I said, I've got a lot of people staying at my house for this conference, but if you need a place to stay, you can throw it on the floor, you know. And, and when I got to his house, his wife answered the door, and she was white. And so I saw immediately the harmony of the races, which was part of my, because part of this quest was I had no patience with personal salvation. I believe that the only answer is universal redemption. We're all in this together. Mm. And most religious quests seem like little frat clubs that kept everybody else out. Mm. And so, you know, part of that universality that I was seeking pertained also to racial harmony. So this gentleman, I see immediately he's got a white wife. So I stayed there. They And in brief, I became a Baha'i that week. Did you go to the youth conference? Well, the interesting thing was the day sessions were only for Baha'is. What? Well, I, maybe I misunderstood that. But in any case, this is another interesting thing. He'd leave me in his house alone during the day while they'd go to the conference. Then at night, <laughs> then at night I would go to the sessions. And, um, and this is sort of where it comes full circle. Because when I was little, as I had mentioned, I was very devout as a Catholic. And as a, as a little boy, I had a book of the Christian martyrs with pictures and there was one that had a caption. It was the Romans, you know, killing you know Christians in the in the arena. And the caption was one guard saying to another, "See how these Christians love one another," like being sort of amazed at that. Wow. Even, yeah. So when I saw all these Baha'is, I'd never seen such diversity before. There were there were white, black, rich, poor, old, young, professors, illiterate people. And because mostly on my quest and I would go to different religious things, there was always just a one stratum of society it sure. seemed to be mm -hmm. drawing, you know. Mm -hmm. But as I was looking at these people, that caption from my childhood went through my head, see how these Christians love one another. And um, as I said, I'm an intuitive person. So in the course of that week, I, I read the Gone, you know, the Seven Valleys, all while I was staying in his house. And I had another experience while I was reading Thief in the Night, and um, and that's how I knew intuitively. That's fantastic. That's my that's my cliffhanger hook that I'll I'll tell that story another time about the experience while I was reading Thief in the Night. You know what? We're not going to have another time, Tom. <laughs> this is it. You've got to tell us now. This is great. Right, I so love because you're a playwright and a storyteller, and you are. I really didn't know this about you're a master storyteller. These are amazing. Keep I'm going. making all this up. Keep no. going. <laughs> Let's let's stay in the chronology. Thief in the night. You All right. Pick it so out, what happens? so they're at the conference, and, and and by the way, at that conference, you know, the night I became a Baha'i, Collins Featherstone shakes my hand. You know, a hand of the cause. You uh -huh. know, it's just to think nowadays when we have no hands of the cause. But in any case, so I'm reading. <clears throat> excuse me. I'm reading Thief in the Night, and so I, when I had woken up that morning, there were these amazing cloud formations in the sky, and so while I'm reading inside, I said, you know what? I'm going to go outside and read. So this is January in Australia, so it's the summer. And I decided, I'm going to go outside and read so I can look at the clouds. So there were these amazing um, cumulus clouds low in the sky, and then across the vault of the sky were these beautiful ribbon-strewn clouds. And while I'm reading outside, I decided, you know what, I'm going to lie on my back and read so I can still see the sky. So I had been fascinated by these clouds all day. And as I'm reading... Um, it says, you know, William Sears, who wrote the book, he's taking all the prophecies of the Bible and showing how um, he, he, you know, he did this as an investigative reporter to kind of prove that Baha'u'llah did not um, fulfill these prophecies. But of course, in the course of showing all these prophecies, he ends up convincing himself that actually Baha'u'llah 
has fulfilled them. In any case, it's the part in the book where Baha'u'llah, uh, excuse me, where Jesus is saying that there were three things will, will be signs when he's returned. And he says at one point, he says, and then you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory. And as I read that, like the book fell out of my hand and it was like, oh my God, mm, that's mm. what these clouds are about. Mm, mm. And, and that's how I knew it was Baha'u'llah. You, you had a personal <laughs> mystical yeah. clouds of glory yeah. connection. And oh, it's amazing great. in how many how many writings of Baha'u'llah he makes reference to that passage about the clouds. Of, uh, right. You know, it's, it's right. And uh, we know. And what are the what is the Baha'i view of what does that mean from the Bible? What's your, what's your take on that prophecy of come, because because a Christian would say like coming on the clouds like like Jesus is riding on top of a, a majestic cloud down from heaven and where everyone on the earth can see him on top of the cloud and he's wearing robes and he's waving at everybody and he's like, well, of hey, course, I'm back, everybody. Yeah, so what's yeah. the what's the Baha'i perspective? Well, that was said in a, in, a, in, a, in a pre-Copernicus age, you know, when people didn't know science and thought perhaps the heavens were up, you know. and uh, But, you know, my understanding is what do clouds do? They obscure the sun. And so it's, it's our clouds of preconceptions, our clouds of... You know what, what does Baha'u'llah say? The the the, the clouds, the, the mists of misgivings and doubts, you know that people have, or their preconceptions, the clouds of preconceptions. Hmm. You know, just like the Pharisees at the time of Jesus, they had a notion of how the Messiah was supposed to return mm -hmm. on a physical throne. You know, mm -hmm. and and, and With so a those, sword in hand yes. as a mighty warrior, right? Yeah. And the and the at the at the Bob's Inquisition in not Tabri. a construction worker from Nazareth. Exactly, yeah. exactly a coffee. <laughs> you know, just like at the time of of the Bob's Tribunal in Tabriz, a you know you know one of the inquisitors, you know, he's he's demanding that he show all these proofs that that Muslim priests at the time thought that the promised one was supposed to demonstrate. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. and it's it's this arrogance we have that you know that we have God in our pocket and we're going to dictate to him how his next yeah. messenger, you know, is going to come. And so, uh, so what was great about becoming a Baha'i within a week of hearing about it is I didn't know any of the laws. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, so you, you uh, became a Baha'i and just, just started partying? What? <laughs> well, the great thing was I still had these tickets to go around um, you know, because while I was on my quest, I had sort of reached a low point, and I thought, you know what, I need to go back to my spiritual support group in Boston. You know, because I realized that you needed, you needed fellow wayfarers to go on this kind of a quest. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't have the Mullah Hussein gene, I guess. You know, and so I had these tickets, and so I thought, okay, you know what, I'll, I'll just, I'll go to these tickets. And the first stop was this Canberra, you know, the city, the capital territory of Australia, where I encountered the faith. So then as I went to these other cities, you know, Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth, I would meet with the Baha'is there and then they would put me up. And so I, I got this deepening in a sense. And then I went to New Zealand. And um, I mean, if if no other reason, that's a great reason to become a Baha'i is you've always got a place to crash. Exactly. exactly. You know, you go to Lima, Peru or Buenos Aires or Samoa, mm. wherever you want to go, like just ring the Baha'is. Hey, I'm in town. Yeah, sure. You can crash on my futon. And uh, it's 
So, dear listener, if there's no other reason. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell a story as a, as a sidebar here. Leon Sternberger, and I'm happy to mention his name, God rest his soul. He was an old, he had been a, a Jewish salesman for many years when he encountered the faith. And so he still, he still introduced the faith with his salesman, you know, category, pitch. his yeah. pitch. And one of the stories he used to tell was... Um, he was someplace with a Christian and, 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 a, and, and a Jew, and of course he was a Baha'i at this time, even though his background was Jewish. And his, his proof to them as to which is the, really the, the truth is he says, okay, we're, we're, there were three salesmen in a, on a, at a conference. He said, let's look in the phone book. You look up the Christian, you look up the Jewish, and I'll look up the Baha'i. Because you know, in those days you could look up Baha'i in the phone right, book. Right, for sure, yeah. And he says, and we'll each call and say, look, we just got into town. Can we stay at your place? For <laughs> <laughs> That's for and he said, "This would be divine proof. <laughs> this was divine proof of spiritual course, legitimacy." The Jew and the Christian didn't get very welcoming answers when they called these like, strangers. <laughs> so that was his. That was his test, always to prove in, in line with what you're saying. See how these Christians love one another. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Fantastic. You know. so, so you continued your quest. Go. This is a good. This is a good juicy story. When is your mem? When are you going to write your memoir? Is that your next thing? Well, Tom, I, come I, on. No, actually, I have written one actually it, and uh, it, it's, it's called Till Your Father Comes Home but um, it hasn't been published yet but um, I'm glad that you skipped over that part about the laws because I don't want to go into much detail okay <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Going well, this, to, it's going the best to way you know, hey because... listen I had an uncle no joke who sold drugs at behind firesides <laughs> so he thought it was a great way because there was a lot of like alternative types coming and going from houses. So he, that's in he the would, bassoon. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was in the bassoon king. Yeah. A good book. Um, yes. Yes. Oh, thanks. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, but actually, it's a good way to become a Baha'i because you know it, the fact is, it's you fall in love with Baha'u'llah, and therefore you know he's the divine physician. So whatever he then says. It's not blind faith; it's conscious knowledge because you recognized him. So you take right. whatever medicine. Now you know it, it's sort of, pardon the expression, um, rear end backwards to sort of investigate the faith by looking at the laws. Yeah, that, that's like when you're dating; you, you look at all the flaws of the person you're dating before you get to know them or something. Right, you know right. What I mean? Yeah, it, it's yeah. like so. It really was a wonderful way because I knew at that point that if Baha'u'llah was to say you have to eat bananas every Tuesday at 2 you, o'clock. But I would have done it because I knew it was for my soul. Because well, you're doing it for the love of his beauty. The love of his so beauty. So you've got to have the love of the beauty first exactly. before you kind of go like, yes. oh, I can't. And it's not blind love because it's conscious knowledge because you've recognized that he is the manifestation. So therefore, you've done your independent investigation. And so to then question a law would be like, you know, if you move to another town, let's say, as you may well do, and, you know, if Walter was younger, you'd need to find a pediatrician in case he were to get sick. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, when and if, God forbid, he were to get sick, you, now you found the best physician. Now he's sick. If you were to call, take him to the physician, and the doctor were to say, look, he needs to take this medicine. It's going to keep him up all night. It's going to taste terrible, and it might even cause stomach cramps, but it'll, it'll get him better. If you were to say at that point... Oh no! I, I really don't want to do that to my son. I, I think I'll find I'll, I'll I'll look for another solution to this. Right, right. That would be so ignorant because you've already right. done your independent investigation. You know this is the best doctor in right, town. Right, you know. Yeah. And so that's why that first step. That's a great metaphor. You know, of knowing Baha'u'llah, then you'll do whatever he says, and you save yourself all those 
mind games of questioning everything all the time, you know, that he, that he does say. Now, there's so much I want to get to with you. That's a, that's a beautiful. Uh, and again, this is kind of proof that you have those 47 <laughs> uh, firesides in you at any given time. I think you're going to get a lot of uh, fireside work out of this out of this podcast. That's but, the Irish raconteur gene. <laughs> nice. Um, I do want to get to the Persian passion, which is the main kind of topic. But I, there's there's so much to go here. So I'm like I'm on pins and needles. You're you're in. Canberra or you're Melbourne and you're crashing with Baha'is like so you're making your way back to Boston I just mm-hmm. want to see how this goes and then and then eventually you went pioneering for a while too right? well I did I, in those days so you... when one became a Baha'i you knew that pioneering was in your future that is what Baha'is did yeah We're, we live in a different time now and unfortunately we pioneer in our neighborhoods now well that's right that's right and, um, and, and uh, you're absolutely right and so it Oh, it really took about um, seven years before my life was in such a situation that I was able to go pioneering. And um, but I went back to Boston. My goal, of course, was now I got to tell all my friends about the truth I've discovered. You know, yeah. and of course, nobody was interested. <laughs> but um, you know, I was twenty-two at the time, and um, and uh, I got elected in a by-election to the LSA of Boston, which is sort of a baptism by fire. At 22? At 22, yeah. He was this little hippie just coming back from, like, Fiji with his backpack. Right. Gets elected to the Boston Assembly. Yes. (laughs) And we'd meet every Tuesday from, like, 7 p.m. to to 1 a.m. Oh, my God. You know, and you can imagine in a big city like that, you know, you're dealing with personal issues and everything. Oh, wow. But there there was this one woman whose house we had most of our meetings at, God God love her, and then she, I think she's, she's pioneering in China right now. Grace Bates, God bless you. She was a great teacher at that time in deepening us in administration. And, uh, and this was at the time of the, the horrible uh, racial riots in Boston in the mid-70s. Oh. This was that, that horrible time. And, uh, and um, yeah, so there's a lot of stories about that, about riding my bike to this meeting. And, and she answered the door. She's like, you rode that bike here? Quick, bring it inside, you know. Oh. And, uh, and walking from the subway. You know, anyway, it was, it was, it was unfortunately, most of these troubles were uh, initiated by my, my fellow Caucasians. Sure. Which was unfortunate, you know, that, and uh, it was a horrible period. It was that time of forced um, busing that, that, okay. that caused a lot of things. So anyway, it was, it was quite a bit. Resistance to forced busing. Resistance to it, yes. And um, so in any case, that was... That was an amazing um, deepening in Baha'i administration at that time on, on, on that assembly. And that must have been incredibly challenging because if you're so mystically connected well, to Baha'u'llah, to clouds, to <laughs> these experiences, and all of a sudden you have to consult and you've got lots of different uh, clash of opinions and oh. administrative like uh, hierarchies and whatnot, it must have been incredibly difficult. Well, one of the books Grace gave me was Baha'i Administration by Shoghi Effendi, and there's one sentence in the beginning where which is sort of a response to what you're saying, where, where the Guardian says that the Baha'i faith is subjective faith complemented by cooperative action. Hmm. And so, you know, you've got to have that experience that we just talked about of falling in love with Baha'u'llah, but then you just can't go off and, and sit on a mountain. You know, you, you've got to yeah. engage in this cooperative action of, that's the of, challenge, isn't yeah. it? We mm-hmm. have this subjective faith experience, but that's not enough. Then, right. then we have to 
mm-hmm. and cooperative action. There's nothing harder no, in the world than cooperative right. action, no matter what you're doing. That's right. Yeah. I remember when I was politically involved, when I was not a Baha'i in New York City, I was got involved with the Green Party, and I started uh, hanging out at Green Party meetings and whatnot, and on the Upper West Side, and trying to kind of organize uh, campaigns and whatnot. And I was going to these Green Party meetings in the Upper West Side, you know, kind of getting politically active. And it was too hard. It was just too hard. It was too many diverse opinions clashing all the time. Of course, they didn't have the divine message. Um, They had some good, you know, policy, platform policies, but they didn't have the divine message behind them. But it was... uh, too hard. Mm-hmm. It was like, well, what about, you know, what about the lesbians? How are their voices going to be heard? Mm-hmm. Well, what about the, you know, the Filipinos? How are their messages going to be heard? There wasn't that unity and diversity idea. So it was this, uh, but that was, uh, I just completely jettisoned it. And I saw the kind of futility of, of politics. Because if you don't have that unifying kind of universal love underlying uh, that cooperative action, it's, it's kind of pointless. Yes, yes. And absolutely. I want to point out, too that since I've known Tom for 18 years he carries around I'm not kidding you he has a little um what do you call that thing it's actually a wine case it's a wine it's a wine case my bank gave that to me a shoulder (laughs) a free bank gift a shoulder case and inside he keeps multiple cans of Kroger and signature brand seltzer water and he's always guzzling seltzer water you can take the boy out of Brooklyn but how how have you been, how have you not gone over to La Croix? It's not bubbly enough. Like, it's so good. The yeah. taste is better. It's like Perrier is flat too. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> Pellegrino is is better. That has okay. a little better. Butter. A little salty. Have you? I'm gonna introduce you to my my seltzer. I have one of those Soda Stream. You make your own seltzer. Have you seen those? I have, and you um, can get it really bubbly, but they get flat after a while. They do get flat after you know, a while. You so. like the little cans. Yes, but unfortunately now my recycling center has closed nearby. And so until I find another one, it's actually made me rethink, should I get what you have? Because I have to figure out a new place to recycle my cans. I'm telling you, SodaStream is the way to go. All and right. the Croix. Okay. Right. Moving I'm a, on. I'm going to convert you. <laughs> so jump us then Boston Assembly, then uh, to Pioneering. Okay, so I, I first I, I home fronted pioneering in Northern California. Um, we got a farmhouse in a strawberry field at the end of the five year plan and the famous Watsonville project. Um, you can look it up <laughs> in 1978. And, um, and it was amazing. You know, we even had a visit from a member of the House of Justice and from Hoopa Dunbar when he was a counselor. They came to visit our project. And the house that I had with Bob Phillips was sort of the the center where all these people slept. <laughs> uh-huh. We drove up Point Neighbors crazy, so it wasn't really the best practice of, oh, okay. you know, but in any case, um, so that was, you know, domestic pioneering, and uh, well, what, what sort of delayed, and then I went on pilgrimage in 78, which was wonderful, and um, my spiritual godmother, Mary Wallace, God rest her soul. She didn't introduce me to the faith, but she became that, that sort of role to me. Mm-hmm. She sent me on pilgrimage, and, and that was just so profound. You know, I was a Baha'i three years at the time. And uh, you know, that, was a, that was a period in which you sat around the, the old pilgrim house, you know, speaking with hands of the cause, you know. It was wow. just, just amazing, you know. And... Um, you know, it's just that we just keep changing. The faith keeps evolving, and there's, there's there's wonderful aspects to every one of these 
stages, you know, and that was, you know, the faith was more connected to personalities in those days, mm-hmm. you know, and, mm-hmm. and today, thankfully, we're, we're getting away. I know in, you, you were speaking um, to, to, to Mujan Moman about, you know, that this, this gravitation away from, you know, personalities and hierarchical structure, you know, that we're that yeah. part of the whole institute process mm-hmm. is, 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 is about that, that new, really, you know, when, what we don't talk about ever is that the, the Baha'i administration is, is the first government in the history of the human race in which no individual has any power. Mm. You know? Wow, that is so profound and well said. Yeah. That's very true. And that's eventually going to be not just, you know, our, our Baha'i administrative model, if yeah. you will, yeah. but the one the government will go by, you know? Right, right. And it's interesting that so many people that are rebellious against the institute process or the, you know, whatever the, the what you call the, the current plan and the core activities, oftentimes are people that kind of had some kind of, I hate to say it, but they kind of had some power mm-hmm. uh, at some point in time where they were looked up to in certain ways and kind of were looked to as a leader of a community in a way. And it's, uh, it's, it's threatening to the power structure to yes. take that to take that away. And and to give a little bit more of a compassionate spin on that, you know, you know, nonsense, Tom. You know, just just as in the world at large, there there has been this. Um, you know, let's at least validate it. You know, this this notion of 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 white older men feeling that they're the new minority. You know what I mean? Sure. And so that has had impact on our our political structure in this country. Now, in the faith itself, to follow what you're saying, when I was a young man, it was those white, middle-aged, many times women, though, not men. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they were middle-aged people who had those roles as auxiliary yep. board members. And now people of my age who now have become that age, the shift has switched now. Well, you've got auxiliary board members in their 20s or in their 30s. Mm-hmm. And so... It could very easily someone like myself feel like, well, gee, when when was my time? Mm, and mm. That, that's that's one of those tests, you Boo, know. That, hoo, hoo. Well, Poor white people. Well, you see, this is the interesting thing because I think Mr. Natchivani, when he was talking about materialism when he last came to the United States, he said that we tend to think of materialism often as possessions, but he said, you know, one of the most nefarious aspects of materialism is, is is that lust for recognition yeah admiration absolutely the titles I talk about that all the time status status seeking which, which social media promotes mm-hmm. um, I think is is much more powerful than people wanting things in Hollywood it doesn't even really matter like how much money you have no one's calculating that like in the world of Hollywood capital with a capital H in mm-hmm. quotes mm-hmm. you know it's how much power you have how mm-hmm. much status you have um Mm-hmm. You can, you know, you might only have a couple million dollars, but you're able to be a giant influencer, and everyone looks up to you, and you're, uh, and you have a great deal of, of of power, and 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 that's what I I think is a truly insidious aspect of materialism. Yes, in one of your talks with the Pepperdine University students, you mentioned a survey of young people asking what's their yeah. biggest desire, and the reply was fame. Yes, so. What young people want more than anything else is fame. So they they don't want money, they don't want sex, they don't want. But with fame comes all that. It comes money and sex. Mm-hmm. They see it as a kind of a solution to any kind of uh, discomfort or 
uh, feeling less than or insecurity or um, uh, fame will heal that. Mm-hmm. Fame is the the, the catch-all bandage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In fact, I, I feel that one of the biggest isms today, you know, we talk about materialism and, and what the writings call racialism, which we don't use that word so much anymore, and communism has sort of already had its day. But the ism that we don't often talk about is careerism. Mm. And when, How do you explain? How do you, how do you see that? Well, when, when people put what you're saying... Um, with the excuse of career, that I'm pursuing my career when it's really at the expense of relationships, yeah. perhaps of your family. Sure. Yeah. You know, oh, I have to, you know, sometimes you'll hear a ball player talking about that, you know, the 50 million wasn't enough. He had to go get the 60 million because he has to take care of his family. And sometimes we use these excuses that right. we're actually doing it for our family. But in a lot of ways, it's about ego. Right. So a lot of, I see that with a lot of young Baha'is pursuing careers, especially in Los Angeles that I talk to or, 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 you know, spiritual seekers or whatnot that, well, I've got to get my career going. And Baha'u'llah talks about career and we need to have an occupation. But really underneath it, it seems like there is, um, I want success and recognition Mm -hmm. and a little status and a little power. Now, now let me just interject. I have been a slave to careerism for most of my life. So this has been a huge struggle with me. It goes hand in hand with workaholism and hand in hand where my identity personally, me, Rain Wilson, is oftentimes not my spiritual identity, but my, you know, my social and career identity. And my, I, I feel oftentimes, you know, useless and meaningless without work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's been an incredible challenge, and especially for my wife. Yes, I can yeah. imagine that. Well, it's it's um, you know it, it's a challenge, especially I think to you know to Baha'i artists, and and you know that you not use the faith as a stick to pro, to prod the jackass of Korea down the road. You know, <laughs> okay. I mean that's 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 um, and you know th- this takes us now it's a little bit of a segue in, into Persian passion because really one of the one of the nice ma- segue let's go there one of the major themes of that book is careerism really and so the most egregious example of it of course is is the prime minister the grand vizier at the time of the bob well let's let's before you go there so you've written this new book Persian passion which is i've never read anything like it before i'm not completely 100% done with it but i'm really enjoying it it reads, it's almost like a play. I mean, it's, it's, there's, it's chock-a-block with dialogue and characters and machinations and drama. It's like Game of Thrones behind the scenes of the Shaw during the time of the Bob and his wife and his mother and the Grand Vizier and their power plays. Did I describe it correctly? You did, yes. Uh-huh. What's the time frame of the book? Uh, 1847, 1848. And at, see, it's just two years. Yes. Wow. Because but, 1848 was really a pivotal moment that we don't often focus on. Okay. And and how so? Explain. Well, in the sense that in one month alone, in July of 1848, while, while the Bob is declaring from the largest public platform possible in Persia, namely the tribunal that, that's been staged to humiliate him, instead he turns it into to a platform to proclaim for the first time that he's the promised one, not only of Islam, but of all religions. At the same time, Baha'u'llah at Badasht is galvanizing all the early Babis into realizing this is not a reform movement. 
This, ah. this is the new day. Mm. And, and that's why when that conference breaks up, it breaks up into three different factions. The Orthodox, who are appalled at Tahari taking off the veil, who retreat back into their dogma and mm-hmm. rituals. Mm-hmm. The, the Libertines, who take her taking off as a veil, and this, uh, uh, you know, we can see how it plays out in today's society. Yep. Taking off her veil is a sign to let all personal restraint go. Were there, was there a libertine movement well, in the absolutely. Bobby faith? Well, this is why when when I had no idea when the when the true so to speak Bobby faction Baha'u'llah Kudus Tahare when they leave Badash and they get attacked in the village of Nayala, the reason why they're attacked is because the libertine group has passed through there first, scandalizing the local people with their behaviors. No kidding. Yeah, and that's so. Then when they hear that this other group is coming, they think it's another bunch of you know, libertine types yeah. acting out. And yeah. so they attack Baha'u'llah's group. And that's not often, it's, it's sort of in the, that's sort of in the, um, between the lines. In the, and it's those kind of situations. So you, didn't, you must have done a ton, <clears throat> a ton of research for, to, to, to dig into this. Because, I mean, other than the Dawnbreakers, what did you, what did you read? Oh, How did gosh. you get this information? Well, there's everything. I mean, I mean, first of all, the Baha'i books alone, you know, like King of Glory, Baliuzi is an incredible source. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, by the way, Tom brought me as a gift the uh, Abdul Baha by H.M. Baliuzi. His biography, yes. Yeah. Oh, and, that's, uh, that's, I'm so excited to read it. Yeah, those books are just amazing. Um, but then there are non-Baha'i sources too, sure. like Abbas Amanat, his his books, uh, Resurrection and Renewal and Pivot of the Universe. But there, there are just so many. Are there non-Baha'i like <clears throat> history books of the history of the Shah that are translated into English? Yes, and some of them are online too. You can read them online by hmm. Watson and by Sykes and some of these other you know writers. And then there's one by Lady Shield. Mary Shield was the wife of the of the British ambassador in Tehran. <clears throat> Excuse me. And she met actually. She had tea with this mother of Nasruddin Shah, this main character in wow, my book, this yeah. this Persian lady Macbeth, if you will. Yeah. Um, who is, is quite a a study in contrast. She's a foil to Tahare, because she takes the woman's movement to the dark side, mm. you know, asserting herself. And so <clears throat> she's a foil in the book to Tahare in many ways. Um, so to go back to what I so. Um, you know, really, without wanting to sound, um, I mean, this whole interview really is somewhat self-congratulatory. It's kind of embarrassing. You know, what Abdul Baha if you sit here talking about himself like No, Abdul Baha you know? would never do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's a little bit of ego and narcissism contained in any podcast of like uh, mm. people that can talk and like to hear themselves talk. Apologies, everyone. Well, so. at least you're not taking my photo. <laughs> That was a thing. That comes Abdul later. Baha, for years, he wouldn't let anyone take his photo. But, oh. but then he, because of the, he says it's an emphasis of the personality, though. I guess, you know, what would he do with Facebook? <laughs> but um, <laughs> Would Abdul Baha take a selfie? We've gone <laughs> would into he some have a really... cell phone? <laughs> yeah, that... <laughs> would he, when I was raising my son, he asked me once, would Abdul Baha go to the movies? <laughs> <laughs> he went to the theater in New York? 
That's right. That's right. He did. He said it was a play about Jesus. Yeah. The eager yeah. heart, I think it was And then called. he wrote a... He wrote a... He wrote a review, so to speak. But he also wrote a play. Yeah. He wrote a kind of a Well, he did, and I can't a, tell you how many times I tried to do something with that, but it's just not dramatic. Yeah, yeah, there's no... It's, it's a spectacle. It's, it's, it, that's what it is. It's not a play so much. Do you know, it's amazing. At the beginning of this interview, and now I'm watching him fly overhead, there, there's, there's been this amazing hawk. So I take that as a good omen for this interview. Um. I love your looking to the skies for signs all the way through. Keep going on Persian passion. All right, so about careerism. You know, the most egregious example, of course, in the book is, is, is the antagonist, the prime minister, who, to save his career, he'll, he'll kill a manifestation of God. You mm. know what I mean? It's, it's like Caiaphas, who does that to Jesus, the high mm. priest Caiaphas. You know, that's the most egregious example. And that's what Jesus refers to, in my opinion. You know, Jesus says that the only sin that's not forgiven is the sin against the Holy Spirit. And Abdu'l-Bahá talks a bit about that. And my understanding of that is when you know it's the manifestation of God and you still attack him. It's not when you don't believe in him and so you, you know, you know, you, you, you're against him or you don't accept the faith. It's, it's, not, it's not about being an enemy of the faith. It's, it's that sort of Judas Iscariot moment when wow. you sort of know this is the guy. Yeah. But yet I have an agenda of my own that's going to take precedence. Wow. You know, that, that, that sin of the Holy Spirit, so to speak, you know. Um, and so there's so much careerism that, um, that, that goes on. You know, that was, that was what was going on with the Molas at the time. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, j- j- that's been the age-old story. Every time a messenger comes, the priests don't want to give up their jobs. Yeah. Now, you wrote another book called Twin Manifestations. Well, that was excerpts, actually, from this book. From this book that you yeah. did for the Bicentenary of Baha'u'llah. Right. So these two writings, well, well, that one's drawn from Persian Passion. That's more of just you took the little snippets of history and kind of compiled them. That mm-hmm. was a terrific a little book. I oh, really, thank you. really loved that. And um, But what, what, uh, what inspired you to write Persian Passion? as your tribute to these twin bicentenaries? Well, as I say, it goes back to when I was in my late 20s. Um, the National Spiritual Assembly suggested, they had actually had hired a consulting firm to help them understand what's the best way to teach the faith. Hmm. And one of the suggestions was a popular historical novel about the faith. Wow. Like and, kind of like Exodus about right, exactly. the Jewish faith. Or the robe about Jesus. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And so... Uh, um, you know, going way back to my training as a playwright, you know, my mentor, William Alfred, who gave Faye Dunaway her career with his play Hogan's Goat, he, um, he always would say that the greatest drama ever was the four Gospels, hmm. just as there was once a movie called The Greatest Story Ever Told. And so we have that again with the Dawnbreakers, you know, that, that, that story, that drama of the forces of light against the forces of darkness when the manifestation of God comes is the most compelling drama. So I always knew that the Dawnbreakers, would, that, that someone had to do with the Dawnbreakers, um, what people have attempted to try to do you know, with the story of Jesus, or in a sense what Shakespeare did with the history of England, that you, you bring these characters alive. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's s- funny that you say that. The Bible is the greatest story ever told. And one of the great successes... Well, the of Gospels. The Gospels yeah. is the greatest story ever told in the, that part of the New Testament. Um that uh, and that's part of the reason for Christianity's success. It is the greatest story ever told. Mm-hmm. It's amazing stories. There's there's miracles and deceptions and 
and subplots and incredible, indelible characters. But we have our own greatest story That's ever right. told. That's uh, right. That that rivals that one. And its metaphor conforms with science because the Dawnbreakers, you know, one one of the best, in my opinion, you know, sort of metaphors of of metaphysics is physics. Not that I know anything about it, but the sun every second expends four hundred million tons of itself. Every second, four hundred million tons of the sun disappear in order to give you and I existence, to give life and light on Earth. Wow. So that metaphor that, that the law of nature is creative death, is sacrifice. Mm, the fountain ever giving of itself. Ever giving of itself. It's not about self-preservation, pre- preservation of youth, preservation of comfort. It's about what a mother does. It's about self-sacrifice. And so that image of, of the light you know, of the dawn breaking, you know, to, to sacrifice itself it is, it conforms with that, that law of science that that's, um, so in any case, you're right. So we have this metaphor and, and even people like Joseph Campbell, they were, they were calling that we needed the universal myth. You know, he's the great mythologist sure, yeah. and he said, we're, we're craving a universal myth. And that's that's part of why we're all wandering in the wilderness of oblivion and error today. We don't have that shared mythology. We don't, we don't have any shared values, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And so look how it affects our art. And so many people, you know, it's mm-hmm. so much of the art in the Western world is just smeared with cynicism and um, and atheism and secularism and sensual materialism and and. Uh, and, and, and a lot of these shows are very popular, but there's no light in them. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. the unfortunate thing. And so, um, so in any case, when, the, when the, the National Spiritual Assembly, I actually wrote to Magdalene Carney and Glenford Mitchell asking if anyone was writing this novel because I wasn't trained as a novelist. I was trained as a playwright. This wasn't something. But they wrote me back and they said, no, no not to their knowledge. And so it was back then that I actually started this research, not knowing that I would still be doing it 35 years later, you know? Well, I think it's, a, it's an essential piece <laughs> of Baha'i history. Um, and the, I mean, can you give us three examples of the outrageousness of the behavior of these people behind the scenes on the, at the, on the, in the court of the Shah? Because okay. people don't know this. Baha'is don't know it. People in the Western world don't know it. It's astonishing. Well, the wife of Muhammad Shah, you know, and Muhammad Shah was, was who was Shah when, when the, for the first few years of the Bab's dispensation. Um, he died while the Bab was in Sharik. Um, his wife was, holding, was having affairs right under the Shah's nose. And his response to that was, Madam, can't you be a bit more discreet? I mean, this, this is, the Shah was, <laughs> was, was not exactly a Henry VIII in terms of, you know, asserting himself. Okay. okay. Um, and... She was conducting this riotous affair with the chief steward of the household, so the Shah finally had to, had to banish him. That didn't stop her. Um, she brings him back eventually and makes him chief executioner when she gets her son on the throne, and he's pretty much the one that orchestrates the massacre of the, of, of the, of the early Babis, the Dawnbreakers. That's amazing. Her lover as chief executioner. I had no idea about yeah, this. Yeah, and so, and you know, the Guardian goes to great pains in his introduction of the Dawnbreakers to talk about, you know, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? In other words, that was a saying at the time of Jesus, who was from Nazareth. Mm-hmm. 
and that in, in my understanding is is that the manifestation of God appears in the darkest place to show that the light can shine even in the darkest regions. Hmm. And so he comes to Persia because, and so the Guardian takes great pains in his introduction of the Dawnbreakers. And so I'm not dwelling uh, in a way I think sometimes some modern art does on this dark side. I'm, I'm showing that to appreciate the Dawnbreakers, you have to understand the darkness they the broke. The swamp from. that it exactly, came out of. Exactly. And so, she, you know, she hated Baha'u'llah, this wife of, of Muhammad Shah. Okay. And for years, is trying to get her claws into him. And she's only able to do it when those crazed assassins try to kill her 20-year-old son. And we tend to forget that that Shah, when he gets on the throne, is only 17. And he's only 20. Which Shah was that? That's Nasruddin Shah. Nasruddin Shah. You know, okay. that he's only a teenager. He's just a, wow. little, just a little twerp, you know. Yeah. And, and she's ruling through him. So she finally can get her claws into Baha'u'llah and throws him into the Sea of Shah when those assassins. So this is actually the first book in a trilogy because it's taking me so long because I tried to write it as one book. I tried to write it in the first person of a character who I've now eliminated. And, mm. and so um, each book is a two-year period, con concluding with 1852 in the Sea of Shah. Wow. Yeah. So, but to go now to the other character you wanted to hear about, who's the Grand Vizier, who Shoghi Effendi calls that evil genius. Okay. And also refers to him as the Antichrist of the Babi revelation. Wow. So mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's. What cool. was his name? His name was Haji Mirza Agassi. And of course, I'm probably pronouncing it in a way a Persian wouldn't, but, you know. Sure. But a, um, a guy from Brooklyn would. You know, as the way a guy. And of course, Haji was his. Um, he had gone on pilgrimage. He'd gone on pilgrimage and, and sort of, you know, liked being considered a holy man. And so liked to be called a haji, you know, this, this kind of a thing. And, uh, and he used that because the Shah dabbled in mysticism. He had he, been... He was kind of a Rasputin. Ooh, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, he really was. He manipulated the Shah. He actually, you know, ran the country. And, and he, the Shah wanted to meet the Bob. Because of his love of mysticism, and then he heard about him, he sends Vahid, the leading theologian, oh, to yeah. Shiraz. Oh, this is all coming together you now. You know, to investigate, and, and Vahid doesn't come back. He becomes a Babi. He sends back the sword that the Shah had given him. And he says, I'm not sending the horse back that you gave me because I'm going to ride throughout the country teaching everyone about the Bob. And Vahid being the most educated, the most educated. erudite. He knew 30,000 traditions by heart, and he was incredibly humble. And he, he was the Shah's spiritual counselor. And, um, and so the, the, the Haji is like terrified of losing his power over the Shah. When the, the Shah meets this Bob, he might replace him, as oh. you see. And, and, but the Shah sends a mounted escort. This is Shakespeare, escort. isn't it? Oh, it is. It is, you know. And that's why Shakespeare, I speak of in the same breath as the Dawnbreakers, because they both show the light and the dark. Hmm. And, we, and we have to see that balance, you know. So the, the, the Shah sends a mounted escort to bring the Bob to court. He wants to meet him. Yeah. And the Bob, and the, and the Shah is, is very sick. He has this terrible uh, case of gout that's killing him, actually. And he's been trying to get all kinds of healers. And this Haji is a self-proclaimed healer, and he can't do anything with it. So he's failing the Shah. And the Bob actually then writes a letter saying, I will heal you if you allow me to debate the priesthood before the throne. Wow. And the Shah says, you know, and, and the Haji keeps these letters from the Shah. Oh, wow. You know? So history could have gone in so many different oh my directions. God. 
The Bab gets nine miles away from Tehran when the Haji stops him, keeps him stalled there for 20 days until he gets the Shah out of the country, convinces him to go on pilgrimage to Karbala. Wow. And then once he gets the Shah out of Tehran, then he sends the Bab to his hometown of Maku, where everybody owes him favors. Oh, wow. See, there's this there's a whole history behind the history yes. that I had... I had no idea. I mean, it's gradually unfolding you in know, your book. But. So that's that's his uh, that's his machinations, as you will. And he was as sexually promiscuous as the Shah's wife. In mm. fact, in a, in a letter, Baha'u'llah's father referred to him as a satyr. He said, "May this satyr be kept away from the Shah." Wow. So you can look that up and figure out what a satyr is, everyone. But um, you know, and so I, I play with that in the book as well. So he was he was. Uh, as someone says in the book, he's, he's a marionette dangled by the three strings of greed, power, and lust. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a Hollywood show, doesn't it? Tom, this has uh, been such an amazing conversation. I urge everyone to get Persian Passion. We'll, send a, we'll have a link here uh, when we post uh, this podcast very soon. What, a, what better way to kind of celebrate the bicentennial of the birth of the Bob? than by uh, steeping yourself in that lore. Um, but before we finish up, just a couple of other more personal questions to bring this back around. Uh, what are you working on now? What's what's next for you? It's actually a, um, you know, it's funny because you're about to, to be in a TV show that's about these conspiracy theories that are so popular now. And for about 20 years, I've gone back and forth with this one novel um, that, that that deals with um, you know, my tease would be will be that it, that it has to do with the third secret of Fatima. It has to do with Islam, the Fatimid dynasty. Mm-hmm. It has to do with the Vatican, the CIA, and UFOs. Wow. <laughs> I didn't see that coming. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. That's awesome. And then, of course, you know, I, I, I have these other two in, in the trilogy, you know, you know to finish, but... Um, Right. Yeah. So that's so you've got more. You've so got your work cut out for well, you. Well, I do, and that's why. As a friend wrote to me last week, and it was my birthday, and she said, "My God," she goes, "I read the introduction of this book. It's a trilogy. How long are you planning on living?" She <laughs> says to me, "I said, well, thanks a lot, but that's my motivation for trying to take care of you know my health right now because you know it's it's you know not to sound pretentious, but um, since we're talking about careerism, you know, Abdul Baha says, "Make ye mighty effort. Choose for yourself a noble goal." Mm. You know, so for all the youth, you know, that's what is your noble goal? Because that's what's giving direction to your life. And that enables you then with every choice you make to say, well, is this moving me towards that noble goal or is it a distraction? You know, make ye mighty effort, choose for yourself a noble goal. Mm, beautiful. And uh, maybe that's words of Abdul Baha that we all can live by. And through all of this, you continue your work as a playwright and using drama and theater in a number of different creative ways. Tell us about your creative stage. That's kind of your website. It's a website. Your interface yeah. with the public. Right. And, and it's, it's, it's a bit more of my sort of past record using drama um, as both sacred space and social drama. It has those two prongs. The, the notion of, um, you know, historically... Theater was the unifying activity of a community. 
it, it, it melded both the economic, the social, the autistic, and the spiritual. So take a rain dance, for example. Okay. It's the community gets together, it's social, it's artistic, it's a yep. dance. Mm -hmm. It's economic because you want the rain to come for the crops. And it's spiritual because you're beseeching the heavens. You know, the Polynesians on the beach beating their drums while they're making the boats for fishing. It's a similar thing. It, hmm. And so it's, and it's ceremony and ritual and storytelling combined. It's all of that. And it's spiritual. And it, it was even economic. Shamans were priests as much as they were storytellers and actors. That's right. That's right. Now, even the ancient Greek theater, it doesn't necessarily have the economic aspect, but it has those other three. It was spiritual. Yeah. It was like retelling the Bible and with different takes. That's what those, those plays And it's bringing were. mythology into the public consciousness, That's which is, right. again, the shared values that come from mythology, like Joseph Campbell. Exactly. Exactly. And so we've sort of, you know, theater has sort of been relegated to sort of an after-dinner mint today. It's sort of, For rich you know, people. You know, it's just sort of an entertainment. And yeah. it sort of has lost that primary purpose. And yet, even in, um, you know, Iran and Persia, in which, you know, iconography and a lot of mm -hmm. the representational mm -hmm. arts were discouraged, even Tazia theater which was religious dramas about the early days of the Holy Family mm -hmm. was, was still put on. So there, there is still this, this function that theater has because it's the art of suggestion and we can't really depict, I mean, literally we can't depict spiritual experiences or God. So we have to suggest. Mm -hmm. And so representational art like film can't even go in certain areas that, that theater can, but as long as theater simply imitates photography, it yeah. loses its biggest um, possibilities. Yeah. And so I've tried to show how theater, the act, you know, our feasts will become much more dynamic when we, when we really have, and, and, I, and I say theater, theatrical in the highest meaning of the word, where we take the time that the House of Justice says to prepare the readings, to practice the readings, to use music in these devotionals, yeah. to, you know, so that we're able to create the sacred space. Mm. You know, that, mm. that, that it's actually, there's a passage I like, it's been retranslated, the new translation of the Seven Valleys, but there's this passage where Sinai is quoted by the I know, Hala. by the way, interjection, uh -huh. I, I met a woman who had memorized the Seven Valleys, the previous translation, and now it's retranslated, and she's so pissed. She's like, "Oh no, I have a, I have a, a wrong translation of an entire book in my head." Oh, I thought that was so funny. Thanks, Stephen Phelps, and I can totally empathize with with that too, because there's this one couplet I'll quote where you know it's translated originally as, "Wouldst thou that the mind should not entrap thee?" Teach it the science of the love of God. And I always felt the that... Mind? The mind? The mind. So repeat that, that one more time. Well, the first two lines in front of it is, how can feeble reason encompass a Quran or the spider snare a phoenix in its web? Wouldst thou that the mind should not entrap thee? Teach it the science of the love of God. Now, that sounds like a quote... From something else. It is, from Sinai, the, the poet Sinai. Mm -hmm. quote, he quotes him twice. He quotes him in the Seven Valleys and in the Four Valleys. And, you know, to my understanding of that, it's, it's talking about the limitations of the rational mind. But what I love about the last line, which now has been retranslated, is to my thinking, the science of the love of God is that we have to create these laboratory conditions, like a scientist does, to facilitate spiritual intuitive experiences. Amazing. We can't just pass the prayer book around yeah. and say, pick a prayer. 
You know, yeah. what I mean, we have to create a space. Yes, a sacred space. You see? And when we do that, and 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 hopefully now with our, with our devotionals, we can begin experimenting with that with storytelling. We can yes. tell the stories as part of the devotion. Some of the least spiritual experiences I've ever had in my fifty-three years on this planet have been Baha'i devotional gatherings, <laughs> devoid of any sense of sacred space, mm-hmm. of passion, of connection, of mystical union with the creative spark of the universe, but just empty recitations from a passed around prayer book or people pulling out their phones. I've talked about this dozens of times on this mm-hmm. podcast, and it's it's so sad. We have a message that can transform the world, mm-hmm. and we're saying, oh God, What's up, what's happening? Dear Teaching the youth. One of the things, so Walter has been going to some youth activities up in Washington State and in Oregon. And in Washington and Oregon, for some reason, it is the most musically inclined place I've ever seen. They have devotional gatherings. They don't, no one recites a prayer. The entire devotional gathering. It'll be an hour and a half long of nothing but singing and chanting and sing-alongs. Um, mm-hmm. It's absolutely uh, spiritually galvanizing. That's what's so amazing about the friends in Africa, the, the music and, and, mm. and everything that goes on there. Well, yeah. So, you know, this this is our challenge. So, so to go back to your question, so the website is is sort of offering some resources to to assist the friends in community building in the sense of how to create sacred space. Mm. And there's some samples there about holy days, about feasts. But then there's the other aspect is the notion of social drama. Since we're trying to make forays into the service realm, yeah. you know, that, that there are different ways that you can use drama um, to serve. You know, as Baha'u'llah says, be anxiously concerned with the needs of the age in which you live. Mm-hmm. And um, so when I had a theater company in the Andes, we would put on these... By the way, that's the story, dear listener, that we didn't get to. <laughs> Tom Lysat running a theater company in the Andes Mountains. Okay. And taking a... Taking Maybe we the, will have to have you back. Taking the company in an unheated bus over the Andes in a four-hour, 40-hour ride to perform at an international conference um, in Lima. And that's street theater, folk theater. Like, it was. Is Augusto Ball? Is that... Is 15 that, is foot that? high puppets. No, because... Um, but it wasn't politically charged. Not only politically charged, but, you know, it, it, it sort of has a negative title, that theater. Um, you know, what is it called again? It's called, uh, in any case, I don't want to talk negatively about anything else. Um, all I'm saying is, is that it was 15-foot-high puppets, you know, stilts, head masks. But we dealt with social issues like how most of the children in the world die from diarrhea, you know, just simply because they're not hydrated correctly and that you can, you know, correct this by a homemade food that you can make. And so putting on plays like that, you know, that are highly entertaining, but they're serving a social, you know, so that, you know, this website can be a great resource for junior youth groups, for any youth groups, um, you know, both in terms of creating sacred space for devotions. And if you want to take it to another step, how you can use drama to serve some of these social needs. Beautiful. Tom Lysat, this has been uh, an astounding pleasure. Uh, uh, I, I never knew you to be quite the master storyteller that you are. Keep telling your stories. Uh, check out uh, Tom's book, books, uh, his website. 
Um, I assume people can write you there as well. Sure, they can. Send yes. fan letters and, and no, whatnot. No, no. <laughs> now, unfortunately, I, I'm, I'm not exactly a social media maven, so <laughs> email is still my choice of communication. <laughs> Um, I'm dating myself. Excellent. You don't even have a cell phone, do you? You're kind of a cell phone. I have a flip phone. Yeah. And I don't give the number out. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Dr. Saidi doesn't have a phone either, by That's the way. That's true. That's true. You guys have that in common. Thank you, dear listeners. Thanks so much. We'll see you later on at Baha'i Blogcast. Thank you, Tom. You're welcome. Was that an hour already? Enjoy your seltzer. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iBlog.net. Thank you so much.